Some of you know that Melanie and I went to Winthrop College. Now it's Winthrop University there in Rock Hill, South Carolina, a little below Charlotte. That's where we met at college orientation, freshman orientation, dated through school, and then after waiting a year after graduation, we were married. While at Winthrop, I majored in political science and couldn't get enough of anything political science, government-related, and uh, was involved in an organization called South Carolina Student Legislature. The acronym was SCIZZLE. We got to go down to the state capitol in Columbia for a week during the spring and take over the capitol, the Senate and the House, and have a mock government. Campuses from many colleges and universities throughout the state of South Carolina had delegates and would put forth legislation, and we did everything that government could do. During my senior or my junior year in college, I was elected as an officer, which meant that my senior year, I would be part of a group of leaders who would organize that year's schizzle in Columbia. It meant for a lot of meetings as well. We would meet at various places to make it convenient for students to travel. I remember one of our meetings was in Conway, which is close to Myrtle Beach. I drove from Rock Hill down through Florence, South Carolina. And some of you know that's where my stepmother was born and raised and where my dad would eventually live after they were married. So that day, I suppose I was being a little hasty in trying to get to Conway for the meeting and was traveling through the town of Florence and came over the overpass. And as I was on the downward slope, I saw a Florence County police officer on his motorcycle with his radar gun pointing it at me, looking at me, nodding his head, and then subsequently pulling out, turning on his blue light, and pulling me over. I was toast. What I did next, I don't understand. You know, of course, the officer came, um, license and registration. Do you know how fast you were going, young man? No, sir. 53 and a 35 which is reckless driving. I don't know why I did what I did, but I did it. He gave me the ticket, and on the ticket was a choice. You could pay your fine and get the points on your license, or you could show up for court. I chose option B. You see, I worked for a lawyer's office in Rock Hill. I was an aspiring attorney. I figured I could talk to the lawyers and get some tips and then go down and try to beat my ticket. So that's exactly what I did. Talked to the one of the young lawyers, and I had this idea that I would try to discredit the officer's ability to use the radar gun and... And I'm not making this up. 
and try to disprove the technology of the radar showing that it had a margin of error and perhaps it didn't clock me going as fast as he said that I was going. In other words, basically I was going down there to say that the police officer wasn't being truthful. Well, my court date arrived, and I made the two-hour drive to Florence from college, went into the courtroom. They called my name, asked me how I would plea, and I said I'd plea not guilty. And it was a bench trial, so the judge asked the police officer who pulled me over to take the witness stand. And I had my suit and tie on, and I thought I was it, and I was ready to win the case. And I actually got to cross-examine the police officer and ask him about his training on the radar and about the technology and was it trustworthy and was there not a margin of error that could have made his um, radar inaccurate and so forth. And when I, quote, rested my case, <laughs> the judge looked at me and said, nice try, Mr. Lee. You are guilty as charged. Please see the bailiff to pay your fine. And, of course, all the points that went along with it on my driver's license. And that wasn't my first ticket, but that was my motivation. Why would I do such a thing? Why was I so arrogant? Why was I such a know-it-all? I don't know. But I look back now and wonder why I did such a thing. I should have been the one sitting in the seat being cross-examined. In fact, more than that, I should have been doing some self-examination, looking at my motives, my actions, my words, my thoughts. What was I trying to accomplish? Maybe you haven't tried to avoid a traffic ticket or a fine like I did, but maybe there's something else that you, you can think of in your life. Maybe it's a, a white lie. Well, you know, it really doesn't make that big a deal, does it? Or maybe there's some flirting going on in the workplace that you know is a slippery slope. Maybe padding an expense report. Maybe fudging on your taxes or maybe gossiping about someone in your Sunday school class, maybe making fun of someone in school. I don't know, but we all have things to work on. We all have our stuff. And we are the only ones who can own it. And I am thankful that I can stand here today and say that we can own these kinds of things our shortcomings with God's grace and his help through the power of the Holy Spirit. I am grateful that God made a way for that to happen in Christ Jesus because we are certainly not the, one, the first ones to take things into our own hands, are we? Remember the first family in the garden betrayed God and stepped outside of the boundaries that God had established in the garden and recognized that and ran away from God and tried to 
take cover and then make coverings for themselves to make their own way. And they knew that that was wrong. God called them out. And then in his grace even provided coverings of lamb's skins then, which was a foreshadowing of the covering that God would provide through the blood of Jesus as we understand the atonement where as an atoning sacrifice for our sins that we are made right with God, we can be one with God again. We can follow in the path that John the Baptist set forth when he said in Matthew 3, 8, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And we'll talk about that word in just a little bit. But I am grateful that God has made a way for us to be reconciled unto God. Throughout Scripture, there are a number of occurrences where people feel like we do sometimes, unworthy of His grace. The prophet Isaiah felt unworthy of the calling God had on him as a prophet and said, I am a man of unclean lips. You remember how convicted David was after the prophet Nathan came to him and confronted him about what he had done to Bathsheba in that adulterous affair and seeing to the, the um, killing of her husband for his own self-gratification. Or remember the, the rich young ruler that we read about last week as we worshiped together when Jesus talked to him about his life and he said he had been keeping all of the commandments, but when Jesus asked him to reflect and to give up everything and give it to the poor. He went away sad because he wasn't able to do that inner kind of work to be able to let go and let God. And then Paul, who wrote over half of the New Testament, says this in 1 Timothy 1, verse 12 through 16. He calls himself the worst of sinners, as the King James says, the chief of sinners, the message version, public sinner number one, the new American standard, the foremost sinner. And in the contemporary English, it reads worse than anyone else. Even the great Apostle Paul was able to see himself in light of God, but writes about the grace that was sufficient for him and is sufficient for you and me. As we reflect on ourselves, and it's vitally important, church, that we do this work of self-reflection. It helps us to engage more closely with one another in relationship as the body of Christ and helps us to be able to give God the stuff that keeps us from being able to hear from God rightly. So this is the role of the Holy Spirit. The, the John In John's Gospel, the 14th chapter, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is our counselor, that the Spirit is the Spirit of truth and will teach us all things and will remind us of everything that Jesus said. This is the role of the Spirit. And then in John 16, Jesus said in verses 5 through 15, and I'm just reading verse 8, that the counselor, the Holy Spirit will convict the world, meaning you and me, believers and unbelievers, will convict the world in regard to sin and unrighteousness and judgment. That the Spirit 
helps us to become aware of our sin and then will convict us of our sin. Helps us to do the work of self-reflection. One scholar says, simply stated, the Holy Spirit is God's active presence in the world. The Spirit is busy at work doing what needs to be done to advance the kingdom of God. And the Spirit will use the Word of God to help us to do this work of self-reflection. And Psalm 139 is a wonderful passage that helps us to do that. I hope that you'll take time this week to read it in its entirety, all 24 verses. There are four sections of six verses apiece. It is a framework that helps us to do the spiritual work of self-examination and reflection. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. When I read it, it reminds me of my grandfather Lee. This was his favorite passage of Scripture, and I had the opportunity to read it at his funeral. Psalm 139. One scholar, Dr. James Mays, in his commentary says, Psalm 139 is the most personal expression in Scripture of the Old Testament's radical monotheism. Humans are seen in light of God's knowledge, presence, and power. Knowledge, presence, and power. Those three words should say something to you, remind you of teaching that you have heard over your years in church. Knowledge, God's omniscience. God is all-knowing. Presence, God's omnipresence. God is all-present. And God's omnipotence, God is all-powerful. He is the omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God. Psalm 139 helps us to see all three of these in one place. The first few verses and then the last two are our focus for today. This is in the form of a prayer where we seek God's power, God's knowledge, God's understanding, and his power over evil and sin. This psalm is attributed to David, who addresses the God who searches and knows the human heart, that our God relentlessly pursues relationship with each one of us. English poet Francis Thompson lived in the late 1800s and died in 1907. He was inspired by this psalm and refers to God in a poem that he wrote entitled Hound of Heaven, a poem about the pursuit of a sinner by a loving God. Here are uh, some of the lines at the beginning of the hound of heaven. Thompson writes, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. I hid from him and under running laughter up Vistid hopes I sped and stopped, precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. He could hear the feet of the God who pursued him, the God who followed after. Oh, I 
trailing a rabbit fan. A wonderful picture of God who relentlessly pursues relationship with us and desires to know us even the more. So I want to share with you two very basic spiritual practices that can help us in this self-examination. I wish I had known this when I was that prideful and arrogant college student trying to win my case in traffic court. Maybe you can learn from my mistakes. The first spiritual practice is, and these are both ancient, it's called the examine of consciousness. The examine of consciousness. That is simply being aware that God is indeed with us every moment. God is with us here and now. God is with us always. And in the examine of consciousness, at the end of the day, we're simply reflecting on the ways that God was present with us through the day. We ask ourselves, how is God present with me today? What promptings did I notice? How did I respond or not respond? What was God saying when you woke up in the morning? How did God reveal God's self on the way to school or as you commute to work? Did God smile through another person at you? Or when somebody motioned for you to go first at the four-way stop with a smile? How are we reflecting on God's presence as we review our day? And it's different for each one of us. But the practice of the examine of consciousness reminds us that God is with us. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O oh Lord. So I pray that you and I would make the intentional effort to be aware that God is with us through the day. And at the end of the day, that we take note of how that happened. If you journal, this is a great place to write it down. The second spiritual practice, similar, is the examine of conscience. So the first, the examine of consciousness, God's presence. Next, the examine of conscience. And this is simply seeing ourselves more clearly in light of God's presence. We take the following actions. We ask God to reveal to us where we fell short of being Christ-like in our behavior or our actions. We are willing to name the situation and our failure. So that Facebook post that we regret, that we wish we wouldn't have put out there, 
or that email that we wrote and then we clicked send and we wish we wouldn't have or maybe we at least wish we would have crafted it as a Word document and then deleted it instead of hitting the send button in an email that we regret. Or perhaps we were short with our spouse and left for work with things unresolved and later wish we would have had gone back and been more respectful before we rushed out of the house. I don't know what it is but each for you, but each one of us can take the opportunity to say, God, where, was, where did I fall short today? Where did I miss the mark? And help me name that and help me to engage in the practice of confession, sharing where I went wrong and seeking forgiveness. Help me repent. And repentance in the Bible means to change our ways from where we fell short toward God so that we can acknowledge our shortcomings, seek forgiveness, and apologize to the offended and to God and move forward under his grace. Have you ever said something like this? Have you ever said, I'm sorry if I offended you. I'm sorry if you were hurt by what I said. When we insert the word if in an apology, it negates the apology. And we're in essence saying that we aren't really responsible for what happened. Rather, we would say, honey, I, I am sorry that I was short-fused this morning. I don't know what came over me. I own up to that. And I ask that you would hold me accountable. If that happens again, then I, I would appreciate it if you just hold me accountable and, and call me out on it. And I, I need that kind of accountability. God blesses us with his grace and the freedom of forgiveness when we engage in this kind of work. The examine of consciousness, acknowledging he's present with us and naming those ways and rejoicing and praising God through them. But then, secondly, the examine of conscious, where we say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That we are as an open book to the Lord. The examine of conscience. And I pray that these two practices may help us at the end of the day to ask this question. And this isn't in your notes, but I hope that you will remember it to ask this question. When was I at my best today? When was I at my best today? I learned that from the counselor, the pastoral counselor and coach that I work with and visit with every so often. And he looked at me one day and he says, Bob, because a lot of times we are hard on ourselves. And he said, Bob, don't be so hard on yourself. He said, I want you to tell me where you were your best yesterday. Where were you your best? 
And every day I challenge you with that question to ask, where, Bob, where were you your best today? And at the end of the day, that I can acknowledge that God enabled me to do some good. Maybe as a dad, maybe as a pastor, maybe as a friend, maybe to a stranger, that I can say, I was at my best when I did that. And oh, how I pray that those words will be helpful to each one of us. There is freedom in forgiveness. There is freedom in doing this kind of work. And I believe that it helps us to be in better relationship with one another as fellow Christians and as the body of Christ. Better able to be open to receive the vision that God has for us as we journey together as a church. There will be less things, less unforgiven, unconfessed sins, less obstruction in our spirits, and more room for God's word to speak that we might be There's a story of a Catholic woman a few years ago who was rumored to having uh, visions of Jesus. And the archbishop decided to do something about it and to check it out. And he approached her and he said, Is it true, ma'am, that you've been having visions of Jesus? And she said, Yes, that's true. I've been having visions of Jesus. The bishop, archbishop said, well, the next time you have a vision, I would like you to ask Jesus this. I would like you to ask Jesus to tell you what I confessed in my most recent confession. Please call me if anything happens. And about 10 days later, the woman notified her spiritual leader of a recent, recent apparition. And within the hour, the archbishop arrived and said this to the woman. What did Jesus say about the things I confessed in my last confession? What did he say? And the woman looked up at him. She took his hand and looked up at him. And she said, Jesus said she couldn't remember. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins... God is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 8 and 9. And the prophet Jeremiah, the 31st chapter and verse 34, these words of the Lord. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins. Thanks be to God for his amazing love. Let us pray.